Howdy, ladies and gentlemen. It's episode 15 of the Five Figures Podcast. I'm your intrepid host, Callum. And we're coming off of a weekend of mixed martial arts and Muay Thai goodness with one on Amazon Prime. It was their debut on Amazon Prime video, and it was pretty damn good. That said, we're going to jump straight into why it was a bit of a meme in the sense that, you know, one has for years been claiming that they are circumventing the weight cutting process. They are cutting down on the weight cut epidemic in mixed martial arts and combat sports in general by introducing things like hydration testing and you know not and, and canceling fights a lot more liberally that's been the narrative that they've been they've been spreading for years and it, it's really funny because if you search up on google right now one hydration testing you get initially the like the first result you'll get is a an MMA mania article from the 25th of May 2017 and the headline for that article is here's how one championship abolished weight cutting in MMA it's by Jesse Holland and you know it's basically Rich Franklin and the motherfuckers over at one being like yeah brother we did it we fucking did it in fact here's a quote from Rich Franklin from this MMA mania article We don't use the term weight cutting because there is no cutting. We've developed a system of how we want our athletes to weigh in. The only way we can ensure they'll actually compete at the weight they walk around at is by hydration testing. So, yes. That's that's cool. So they say all that. This was back in 2017. And then if you see, well, if you search what I just mentioned up on Google, the second result immediately underneath that is an article from eight days ago, also on MMAmania.com, and the headline reads, and I quote, Nine fighters fail hydration tests or miss weight for one championship's Amazon Prime debut event. Ah, <laughs> uh, how the turns have tabled. Yes, no. It was a bit of a disaster in terms of the weight-cutting process for one championship this weekend big disaster. There were a number of people who missed weight, most notably Rod Tang Jitmanyon, who is one of the biggest stars in one championship right now for the flyweight Muay Thai division. And he was set to fight, who was he set to fight? He was set to fight uh, Savas Michael this weekend, but he didn't end up fighting Savas Michael because, at least according to this specific article, he failed his hydration test and as such he had until 3 a.m local time to make weight and hydration and then you know he failed that or he failed to make that that limit as well uh, he, he i believe he was also unable to provide a hate i uh, sorry a hydration sample at all which i think was a similar situation to adriano mariah's uh there was some twitter there's some twitter threads on it jay petri said on August 26, 2022, it's official, Adriano Marias coming in at 135 pounds, and well, he was 135.25, so he was a quarter of a pound over. He has missed championship weight by a quarter of a pound and failed his hydration test as well. He has about six hours to get both situated or it becomes a big drama show. And then there's a follow-up from Jay that's it should also be noted that at the early weigh-ins 10 hours ago, circa 10 hours ago, Marias could not provide a urine sample and was not allowed to weigh in. He was given several hours to come back and make the weight, resulting in what we have now. Now, apparently, there was there was some really, really early 
weigh-ins and I think some people just didn't they didn't prepare adequately for the time that they would be weighing in which is quite a significant thing you think about the UFC you think about their early weigh-in process they get athletes to weigh in I believe nowadays it's 8 a.m to 10 a.m so you can kind of plan everything out and you can plan to lose a certain amount of weight overnight leading into the weigh-in period so that you can essentially wake up on weight or you can wake up an hour or two beforehand, jump on a bike and and work the final pound or two off if you've prepared adequately, that is. Whereas I don't believe one's, like the timing was like that. I believe it was at a, a weird fucking time. I don't know. But then there's also there's also some Twitter threads of people clearly cutting for the event. Yeah, I believe it was Walter Gonzalez. Walter Gonzalez was like on a treadmill and he was in a sweatsuit and it was very clear he was posting videos to social media and he was posting screenshots to social media of him very clearly cutting weight in, you know, the the archaic manner. I guess one would put it. Yeah, so good on one for really eliminating weight cutting here. <laughs> I don't know. It's a very it's a very multifaceted issue. I'm not going to... This sounded like I'm just blasting the shit out of one and saying, wow, anything you try and do is just, you know, it's completely futile. You'll never be able to get rid of such an archaic process. It's, it's inherently in, imbued into the tapestry of this sport's history and this sport's culture. You know, I don't want to be that motherfucker because you've you've got to try and innovate. You've got to try and figure out a way to circumvent an issue, which is, I mean, it fucks up cards, man. For years on years on years, it has ruined cards. People mess up. They don't come in at the weight limit that's prescribed. And, you know, it just, it fucks things up. Weight cutting is a problem for combat sports. And it impacts our enjoyment as viewers, and it impacts the lives of the athletes in question. It impacts the promotions. I think about the promotions last of all, because for the most part, they're rich as fuck, or they're backed by significant amount of institutional and private capital. So, like, you know, I don't care so much about them, but for the athletes and the fans, it can be quite significant. It can really fuck up cards, and it can really fuck up performances as well. So I appreciate that one has been for years trying to do something about it. It's just their system isn't foolproof, and they've got to admit that. So yes. But the actual event itself was pretty good. Obviously, in the main event, we had Demetrius Johnson, the former UFC flyweight champion, who was traded over to one championship. When was that? Like, back in 2019? because I believe that's when Ben Askren made his debut in the UFC after he was traded over to the UFC from one. Yes, yeah, so he's been over in one for a couple of years. Was doing pretty well. Honestly, had some some banging fights. Uh, had a had a great fight against uh, Wakamatsu when he first came over to one in early 2019. Uh, got stopped by Adriana Marais for the One Flyweight Championship last year in April hasn't returned since or had not returned since 
And so I was getting an immediate rematch and was able to pull it off. It was really dope. It was a really interesting performance. I think Adriano Marais came out and he had prepared very adequately for the Southpaw open side body kick that DJ is a big fan of. And DJ came out straight out the gates and he was starting in orthodox and he was switching stance as Adriano was circling out to his left. So he's switching into Southpaw as... Adriano circling out to the left away from the right hand. So, you know, that, that's a good approach if you're fighting an orthodox opponent, but if someone switches on you, then you're essentially walking directly into the body kick, which Adriano did once early in the first round. But besides that, early on, Adriano was doing really well defending that that left body kick. He, I believe he caught one. He caught one early on, and then he caught another one, and then initiated a takedown off of it. So... Yeah, we spent the vast majority of the first round on the ground, and it was just really fun watching Adriano desperately try to pass guard and not be able to do anything. I don't believe at any point throughout the course of the fight he got past half guard. For the most part, DJ was able to keep him in either full guard with butterfly hooks or in half guard, and you know it was a very active half guard as well. It wasn't just it wasn't just Adriano sitting on top building up posture and then landing blows as you would typically expect from someone in top half guard in mixed martial arts. No, it was DJ constantly threatening sweeps and things like that. I think there was one point in the second round where he he went into half guard, isolated the left leg of Adriano, and then bridged, nearly got the bridge sweep. Nearly did that shit. He just, uh, he didn't trap the right arm of Adriano, so Adriano was able to post and prevent the sweep. But yeah, it was just a lot of that kind of shit. A lot of DJ just constantly threatening. Lots of framing on the face, and then when Adriano kind of pushes back into that frame, DJ removes the frame and then is able to, to hit him with an elbow. Cut him open pretty bad midway through or later on in the first round from the bottom. He was in a position where, well, initially he tried to switch his hips for the armbar, and he didn't get a hold of the left arm, which was the arm he would have been going for with the armbar. So he kind of swung his right leg over the back of Adriano and held on to Adriano's left arm. So technically Adriano was kind of at risk of an omoplata, but... You know, there wasn't any... DJ didn't switch his hips or anything. He just used that position to land some elbows. It was really cool. And he landed a big elbow, and it caused a big cut on Mariah's, which seemed to affect him not super significantly, but it did seem to affect him a little bit going into the second, third, and fourth rounds. Yes, and then I thought Adriano actually came out in the second round and looked better than the first round, and I thought the first round was pretty close. I think you could have scored it either way. In terms of the damage scored, you'd probably give it to DJ just by virtue of having the most significant shot of the round, the elbow which caused the cut. But the second round, I thought Adriano did a great job. He caught a knee that DJ threw on in the clinch on the cage. DJ kind of got into a rhythm, throwing knees to the body, and... Adriano was able to catch and underhook the knee and was able to turn that into a takedown, was able to elevate and, and bring DJ to the ground. It was really cool, man. It was really cool. But yeah, I just I was really impressed by DJ's work on the bottom. I love the way that DJ is so I mean, he's doing fundamental basic things like, you know, he's he's trying to get back to butterfly hooks, 
or back to full guard from half guard. And, you know, he's just, he is utilizing overhooks or really high underhooks to control upper body posture of Marias. And whilst he has that upper body posture contained, then that's when he, he swings his feet in and he's looking for he's looking for hooks and whatnot. So yeah, I just thought it was really fundamentally sound bottom work from DJ. It was cool to watch. You love to see it. And then then the third round happened and we didn't really see we didn't really see a takedown from that point onwards, I believe. And DJ was just he got more in his flow, got more in his flow, I thought. Again, like I said, Adriano was doing a great job of of defending against the southpaw, like kicks from southpaw open side. And also setting up his own stuff. He hurt DJ pretty bad in the second round, it looked like. Initially, in the first half a minute of the round, he throws an outside low kick, lands pretty good on DJ, and then, you know, a little while later, like 30 seconds, a minute later, whatever, he went high with that same side high kick and seemed to rock DJ. But from the third round onwards, DJ was pretty he was pretty defensively responsible and uh, didn't get caught with anything like that again lots of switching setting up the open side body kick as we mentioned he was doing a really good job of you know so initially like I said when Adriano was circling out to his left from orthodox as in DJ is orthodox Adriano is circling out to his left then that's when DJ was switching to southpaw and intercepting Adriano with the southpaw body kick. But about halfway through the third round, he stopped doing that and he just started throwing the left hook as an entry. And then as Adriano would step back and, and circle away, circle to the outside of DJ's stance, DJ would throw a right hand, a straight right over the top. And it was looking really mean. He caught him a couple of times with that. I think it was just a product of Adriano was getting a little more tired and DJ's cardio is so sensational. He maintains it throughout the course of a five-round fight impeccably and you know he's going to have that same kind of pop and he's going to have that same kind of speed that he does at the beginning of a fight 15 minutes into a fight and I think that's probably the reason he was able to land those right hands over the top while Adriano was circling out. Finish came in the fourth round. DJ was doing a great job in the fourth and it came off of, well, he was picking up the lead leg a lot. He was picking up the lead leg Charles Oliveira style and sometimes getting counted off of it. Early on in the fight, there were a couple of times where he's picking up that lead leg and then switching stance off of picking it up. And as he's switching, Adriano's landing left hook. He's actually landing a really nice right hook, a counter right hook, which is obviously a very difficult shot to land. Rear hooks to the head are quite difficult to land because you've got so much more ground to cover than a lead hook. You know, the rear hook is further away from your opponent. As such, you know, it's more difficult to land. Pretty simple, basic logic. But he was doing a really good job of kind of sensing that DJ was stepping in or was picking up that lead leg to switch stance and come in with a shot. And he was flattening his stance out, and then he was circling out to his right, DJ's left, and throwing that right hook as he stepped out. And it was really cool. It was, a, it was a nice little right check hook that he was throwing. And then he would return back to his normal orthodox stance and, and continue onwards. But I thought he was doing a really good job of that. Stopped having as much success with it in the third and fourth rounds. I think DJ really clued into 
clued in on it and was fainting off of those uh, off of picking up his lead leg a lot more effectively and that's kind of what led to the finish he picked up his lead leg and then he threw that straight right down the middle it kind of had a little stagger to it the timing was a little bit off and it caught Adriano unaware rocked him and then Adriano kind of fell back against the fence and as he was falling DJ caught him with a step in knee with a flying knee and the fight was waved off. Didn't even didn't require any more follow up shots. That was the that was the end of the bout. And so, DJ claimed the one flyweight championship. How delightful! Yes, it was just a a solemn reminder. <laughs> like hey hey y'all must y'all must have forgot. Because yeah no it's been it's been a while since I've watched a DJ fight and gone wow. Remember when we were talking about him as the goat? I I can see. I can see why we were saying all that. You know, back when he was fighting Wilson Hayes and Ray Borg back in 2017. That was all the fucking rage. You know, after that that armbar that he landed on Borg. Everyone was just, you know, repeating the Joe Rogan line that he said in the commentary booth that night. Who's better? Who's better? And I think that kind of died down. That conversation died down a bit once he went to one. But... This performance was just so fucking incredible, and I thought he was so incredibly aggressive. I thought the stance switching was really good. Yeah, I, I just thought he looked absolutely sensational throughout the course of this fight. His work on the bottom was great. I thought Adriano Marias looked great as well. It wasn't like this was Adriano Marias coming in ill-prepared for the uh, for the fight. No, he, he looked good. He looked well-prepared for the southpaw body kick. He looked really good in terms of landing his own kicks. It's just... DJ, in spite of the size differential, he was able to close distance really effectively. Landed some beautiful uh, shifting left hooks. Started in southpaw and shifted into orthodox and landed the left hook with it. Landed that a couple of times in the third round. Looked fantastic doing so. Yes, I thought just DJ put on a very comprehensive, impressive performance and would be very excited to see him defend the belt whenever he gets to do so. So that's delightful. What else do we have on this card? Nongo defeated Liam Harrison. It was a bit disappointing. We all kind of expected a war, a bit of a bomb burner. But unfortunately, we didn't really get that. Because, well, Nongo landed some beautiful outside low kicks, and Liam Harrison's legs seemed to seize up. Now, I believe he posted on Instagram recently and was saying that he requires surgery. He fucked up his, his ACL or something like that. Oh, I believe I've gone on the wrong page. Yeah, I just had a look on his social media. Couldn't, I mean, he was in the hospital, obviously, but I, I don't think he's having surgery. I think fake news on my part. But yeah, it was a little bit disappointing that his leg gave out as quickly as it did. But you really watch it. Some of those outside low kicks, Nongo's landing right behind the knee. And looks fucking brutal. I mean, yeah, no, I wouldn't like to take a kick from Nongo, but the specific placement of those kicks in particular is very impressive. So yes, Nongo defends his, I believe it's a bantamweight belt, in one's Muay Thai bantamweight division. So that was cool. Pumpayak stepped in for Rod Tang, who missed weight, and he took on Savas Michael. And I was seeing some weird fucking narratives around this fight, around Savas Michael particularly, coming into this week. And 
There were some people on Reddit talking shit about the Flyweight Muay Thai Grand Prix and saying, well, you know, Savas Michael is just not on the same level as some of these other guys and Walter Gonzalez shouldn't even be in there, honestly. You know, yeah, he gave a relatively competitive fight with Rod Tang, but ultimately he got, you know, he got beaten. He got beaten. He shouldn't He shouldn't be in there. He's not, in the same, he's not the same class. He's not the same pedigree as these other guys. But, you know, Savas Michael had a really, really great fight against Amir Nazeri relatively recently. I thought his kick counters looked fucking blazing fast. He looked sensational in that con- in that contest with Nazeri. So I thought he was it was very much he he earned his place. He very much deserved to be there and I you know, he's a very entertaining fighter. But Pumpayak, yeah, no, he butchered the fuck out of him. <laughs> Early second round. Kind of starter steps, throws a right hook around the guard and then throws a left high kick and flatlines Savas. He's, he flatlined him with the right hook. Didn't even really need to land the left high kick, but he did. And yes, it was a brutal knockout. Fucking brutal shit. So that in tandem with Superlek butchering Walter Gonzalez in the first round means I believe those two are going to be in the final, which is going to be a fucking banger of a fight. I'm pretty excited for that. Yes, this this Grand Prix hasn't been as electrifying as I think we wanted it to be, just by virtue of a lot of these fights kind of you know, a bunch of shit going on. Obviously, we wanted to see Rod Tang fight the other night. That would have been amazing, but that didn't come to fruition. And Jonathan, John Haggerty was meant to be in the Grand Prix as well, obviously. But then he had to pull out because of health issues in the first round versus Walter Gonzalez. And so Gonzalez got to walk through Jose Cruz in the first round. So... Yeah, whatever. We get Pumpayak versus Superlek in the final, and it's going to be fucking banging. So, not too much to complain about in that regard. And then, besides that, yeah, Bucecha picked up a, a victory over Grishenko via heel hook minute in. It was impressive. A little bit of a step up in competition because his most recent fight was against Simon Carson. I believe that was on short notice as well. Simon is... Uh, coach at Absolute MMA here in Melbourne, Australia, and I don't believe Simon's been fighting regularly recently, so that was a bit of a, all right, how we doing here kind of fight. Whereas Grushenko's, I think a little bit, little bit more legit. So that that's cool. Pachech is working his way up. I mean, he's he's only what four and zero in mixed martial arts, so he doesn't need to be fighting absolute killers yet. Like shit, he doesn't need to be fighting cream of the crop. But it's good to see him take slow incremental steps up in competition so that's cool you love to see it one doesn't have another card until pet morricott and tawan chai that's not until what september 29th so yeah there's a little bit they've they've got a weird schedule going on right now because they had this this card and then they had a card like a week ago no i'm trying to think no was, was it the day beforehand it was the day beforehand, sorry. Uh, it was the Christian Lee and OK Rayun fight, the rematch between the two of those. And it had Fairtex in it. Like, it was a weird fucking card. It didn't have a whole lot of fights on it. And it's like, why the fuck are you putting this the day beforehand? But then the previous card you had. So they had one 160 the day before one on Prime Video. And then prior to that, their last card was 1-159, which was the Derrida Big Dash card, which we covered here on the podcast like a fucking month ago. 
So they're, they're doing a month, month on, month off kind of thing. Not month on, month off. They're, no, they're, they're having a month off and then they chuck two fucking events back to back and then they go another month off. It's like, what are you doing, guys? This is a very weird way to schedule your fight promotion, your events. I don't really get it. Each to their own, whatever. Now, have I watched the Contender series? No, I generally don't, unless I particularly like a fighter or I'm very interested in watching a specific fighter. I don't really, so I haven't watched that yet. Fuck it, let's just... We're going to preview UFC France, actually, because there's some fucking bangers on this card. There's some fights which we don't really give a shit about, but there's also some bangers, and I like bangers. In the main event, we have Cyril Garn taking on Tai Chiwavasa. That's cool. That's good. Cyril Garn, I have done a video on him in the past, back when he, what, he was coming off of wins against Tanabosir, Dontel Mays, and Rafael Pessoa. So his first three fights in the UFC. I did a video just after that, and it was just prior to, he had a scheduled fight with, I was about to say Roman Delize, but it definitely wasn't Roman Delize. It was Ante Deleja, who was coming in from PFL, I believe. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that got cancelled, and Deleja never ended up debuting in the UFC, and since fucked off to other promotions, specifically. I think, I think yeah, he is in PFL right now. And I believe he recently got a win. So, yeah, so he released a Prospect Watch video just before that fight, and since then... He's, you know, he kind of blazed his way through the heavyweight division, the upper echelon of the featherweight division, on his way to a championship shot against Francis Ngannou. He got consecutive wins over Junior Dos Santos, Jarzinho, Rosenstruck, Alexander Volkov, and Derek Lewis. The the ones that I would pick out as being the more impressive ones, are, well, I'd say the Volkov one's the really impressive one. I just thought he did a great job of picking apart Volkov and controlling center of the octagon. Didn't make it look as easy as Tom Aspinall did recently, but still, regardless, it was a it was an incredibly impressive victory. Thought his jab looked sensational. Outside low kicking looked great. He was stepping in off of the inside low kicks from Orthodox and then coming in with overhand rights over the top of that. You know, Cyril Garn's an interesting fighter because you watch him and you go, yes, he he's incredible for a heavyweight because he has these incredibly light feet and he has a beautiful little jab that he flicks out there. He steps in with elbows really effectively, switches stances really fluently. He will do this thing where he he follows guys in their stance. So he basically hunts for the the open side body kick, which we saw against Dontel Mays quite a few times, or at least a couple of times. Dontel would get hit while in orthodox by the southpaw body kick from Cyril Garn, and then Dontel would... Dontel Mays would switch stances into Southpaw to close off that angle, and Cyril would switch with him. He'd switch into Orthodox, specifically so he could threaten the 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 body kick from that open side again. And he, he just did that. You know, he just followed him in terms of the stance switching. Which is cool. I love to see that. I love to see adaptability from both stances, and particularly from a heavyweight. Given that heavyweight is the division of fat bums. So that was really impressive in that contest. We haven't seen that as much in more recent fights, but that's primarily because most of the fighters he's been fighting don't switch stances that much. You know, Junior Dos Santos, Orthodox. Jasen Rosenstruck, Southpaw. Alexander Volkov and Derek Lewis, both Orthodox. 
you know, they're not switching stances regularly. So we just haven't seen a lot of that. But those are the kinds of things that he will do. And it just demonstrates a real technical tenacity, technical aptitude more like. And then you also have the side of Cyril Garn where he just fucking yeets himself into the pocket like an absolute madman. Again, in the fight with Dontel Mays. Like I said, like I said just then, he was throwing some really good technical shit. But then there were also times where he's yeeting himself into the pocket and his head is four feet in front of his hips. And he's he's not really rolling under... You know how when a boxing coach teaches you fundamental techniques, teaches you the fundamentals of rolling and slipping and avoiding strikes. They talk about keeping your weight underneath you so that you're balanced. And you, if you do get hit in that circumstance, it's unlikely that you're going to get thrown off balance and then put on your ass or something like that. You know, that, that's how they teach you to roll under a shot. They teach you to keep your hips underneath you, keep your feet underneath you, utilize your footwork, and, you know, don't duck, really. You, you level change, and that comes from the knees. But there are just so many times where Cyril is just ducking to roll underneath these strikes and then coming up with wild hooks. And it's hilarious, you know. He has the athleticism that a lot of these other heavyweights don't have. So, yes, he can fight incredibly technically on the outside. And he can land his elbows. And, and, you know, he comes from a Muay Thai background. He has some really nice sweeps as well that we saw in his Muay Thai career. He can do all that good shit. But if worse comes to worse, he can also just use his elite athleticism for heavyweight, and he can he can lean on that a little bit, and it can give him an advantage against some of these fatties who don't have cardio for more than two and a half minutes. He can go a full 25 minutes, and that just gives him an inherent advantage over so much of the division. Yeah, so he fights really long. He's got a great outside low kick from Orthodox, and these, these are the kinds of things that we're going to have to be thinking about going into this fight with Taichu Avasa, who has kind of reinvented himself and really brought his level up since you know, patchy beginning to his career. He came into the UFC having some, some big finishes in AFC here in Australia, and then he comes in, he fought on the Vadum and Tabura card. He was like one of the saving graces of that absolutely fucking terrible card in Sydney. He comes in and he outside low kicks Rashad Coulter, buckles Coulter's leg, and then steps in with a flying knee and knocked him out in the first round. And it was really cool, and everyone was like, oh my god, it's Mark Hunt, but he can actually throw flying knees and shit like that. This is crazy. What the fuck? You know, and then comes out and had a slightly more disappointing performance against Cyril Asuka, Asuka back at UFC 221 in February of 2018. He sort of bludgeoned him. And it kind of became a bit of a, it became a bit of a thing because you go forward to his losses to Blagoy Ivanov and Sergey Spivak, and it's not snappy outside low kicking. It's not throwing straight rights. It's not throwing the jab into the overhand right and then rolling out. It's, it's not technical striking. He's essentially just wading into the pocket and throwing massive hooks and just hoping that his volume, his speed, because he is a fast dude. You look at him and you're like, oh, he looks a little bit chubby, but. Like so many of these small motherfuckers, a little bit of chub is deceptive. He is fast as fuck. And he kind of relies on that a little bit. And against Cyril Asker, I thought he got away with that. And then he comes into the fight with, against Andrei Arlovsky, and I think he had a clear speed advantage. But he couldn't put Arlovsky out, and Arlovsky actually seemed to hurt him on a couple of occasions with some good counter-striking. 
And then he comes in against Junior Dos Santos, gets TKO'd in the second round. Thought he looked pretty good in the early going of that fight, but kind of lost his way, and Junior was able to, to hurt him, I believe, with the overhand right in the middle of the second round, and then finished him off with ground and pound. It was it was pretty, pretty funny, honestly, because Ty was on his back trying to defend shots and ended up throwing up punches from his back. And, yeah, no, it wasn't particularly effective. No, he, he got finished. But, yeah, that Junior Dos Santos fight kind of put him into a bit of a spiral, and it seemed like we'd seen his peak, which wasn't that fucking high. It was Andrei Arlovsky in Chicago kind of eking a decision out of him. You know, went on a three-fight losing streak, lost to Junior Dos Santos, lost to Ivanov, and that lost to Sergei Spivak, which was just low-key kind of embarrassing. That was a UFC 243, so that was the Whitaker-Adesanya card here in Melbourne. And, oh man, he just kept getting dumped on his ass by Spivak and completely overcommitting to hooks that he shouldn't have been committing to. And Spivak is putting them on his ass. He ended up hitting him with an arm triangle, and it was like, fucking hell. It was it was not a great performance from Ty by any stretch of the imagination. Then he came back and he had a really solid, uh, like a solid performance against Stefan Struve, who, was that Stefan's final fight in the UFC? I believe that might have been when he retired. Yes, that was his last fight in the USC, and he's since announced his retirement. But then, you know, he's had some more impressive victories since then. The Harry Hunsucker one, you know, Hunsucker's not cream of the crop, so we won't put much stock in that. But then he had the banger against Greg Hardy, which I think everyone everyone just enjoyed because no one really likes Greg Hardy, so, you know, that was cool. But then I think the Augusto Sakai one was the one that made people go, oh, shit, no, he actually might have something here. I thought... His hooking in the pocket was... It just looked better than it has previously. He came out early in that second round and finished the fight. But I thought in the first round, he looked really solid. He was throwing he was throwing low kicks and being really conscientious with his offense. It was it was a relatively patient first round. There were a couple of times where I think he, he got an inkling for a finish, perhaps, and he started flurrying. But he kept his composure, and then it was at the beginning of the second round he came out, just guns a-blazing, and landed some really good shots and then in the Derek Lewis fight, he looked great. Looked great. Got hurt by Derek at one point, but he, yeah, no, I believe he finished him with an elbow. And he showcased his clinch work, which is something that has been sort of undervalued throughout the course of Ty's career. I mean, he's done a lot of work with Tiger Muay Thai out in Thailand. You see him in a lot of training videos for that. And, I mean, something that you forget about. He worked with Mark Hunt for years. I mean, I think the story is that, yeah, Mark Hunt came, or Ty came into Mark Hunt's gym and kind of viewed him as a hero, obviously, because, you know, yeah, I mean, he's a hero in the world of mixed martial arts, and eventually became one of his main training partners. And, yeah, so you see, when when he first came into the UFC, we kind of saw him in that cult of fight. We were like, oh, damn, he kind of looks like, looks like a Mark Hunt clone, but slightly more athletic and definitely younger. <laughs> and... You see that in the Derek Lewis fight because Mark Hunt, man, in his heyday, watch that that first fight with Bigfoot Silver. Some of the elbows he was landing in the clinch, fucking mental. Just brutal shots. And I think Ty taking a lot of that clinch work, taking a lot of those elbow those 
approaches to landing elbows. He's taken those from Mark, and he's taken them from Tiger Muay Thai, and he's he's incorporated them to his game. When he doesn't use them, it's a little bit sad because it's like you just know in the clinch he is a strong dude, and I think he has shored up some of his takedown defense issues because he he worked a little bit at AKA for a little while there. So yeah, I think his his takedown defense has probably gotten a lot better than it was back at UFC 243 when he fought Spivak. So. But yeah, his, his clinch work is sensational. He's strong in that that range. I really like his approach of framing on the face. I'm trying to think about who he did it to. I think he did it to Cyril Asker a few times, and it was it was one of the it was one of the features of that performance which I did actually quite like. He get into the clinch, and these guys are trying to get double underhooks on him so that they can control his posture, so that they can mitigate his offensive threats in that range. And he extends his arms out straight and frames on the face, pushes against their face, and then, you know, he's he's a strong motherfucker. When he pushes against your face, it's it's unlikely that you're going to be able to hold on to double underhooks extremely tightly. And with that space he's created, then he starts folding in the hooks to the body and then goes up top, or he starts folding in elbows over the top. And he can do some really good work there. So yeah, I think he's he's a very dangerous guy on the inside. On the outside, got great outside low kicking. He's got a decent jab as well. We just don't see it that much. <laughs> much rather swing behind an overhand right. So this is going to be an interesting fight, I think, in all likelihood, I don't know what the odds are for this contest. I, but I would assume that Cyril Garn is quite a sizable favorite. He should likely be a sizable favorite. I'm bringing it up now on Sportsbet. Yeah, according to Sportsbet, Cyril Garn's a dollar fifteen to win. Tai Chiuvasa is five fifty. Now that's an interesting line. I think I'd put money on Tai in in this circumstance because I kind of like Tai's odds in this fight. I think in terms of the outside low kicking, he's got a mean outside low kick. And I think the key is avoiding the the southpaw body kick that Garn will throw up repeatedly. The key is fighting in a range that's obviously going to be advantageous to him. So he's got to close the distance. He's got to work his elbows on the inside. It's it's difficult because Cyril is strong in the clinch, and additionally Cyril can he can drop for a takedown when necessary. And I'm not saying that those early submissions in his UFC career are like indicators that he is a real threat on the ground. Because you know, getting an arm triangle over Rafael Pessoa is you know it's it's not the same as getting it over someone in the upper echelon of the heavyweight division. Because Rafael Pessoa. Did he end up fucking winning, like, at all in the UFC? He won one fight. He beat Jeff Hughes in 2019. Besides that, well, he lost to Cyril Garn in his UFC debut, beat Jeff Hughes, and then went on a four-fight, or is currently on a four-fight losing streak. He only had one more fight in the UFC, though, and lost to Tanner Bosier in that contest. So, you know, getting a submission victory over Rafael Pessoa, not the best indicator of your ground game. But, you know, he also got a, a heel hook over Don Talmaze in, like, the very end of the fight. In a fight that he was clearly winning and doing some great stuff, like throwing beautiful intercepting knees as Don Tail was stepping in. You know, he he finished that fight with a fucking heel hook. He decided, you know what? Winning on decision, that's for fucking pussies. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heel hook this bitch. And he did. 
Actually, on that note, the intercepting knees, I'm now remembering, because they were such a significant feature in that maze fight. And in the Tanner Bosair fight as well, the third round of the Tanner Bosair fight, oh, you see heaps of intercepting knees as Bosair is trying to enter in with the one-two. And I just think, now that I'm thinking about it, I think that might be a significant issue for Ty. If Cyril is very willing to throw those, he could have a lot of success with them. It is a bit of a risky maneuver, of course, throwing the intercepting knee, because you put yourself in a position where you, I mean, a dude can enter the clinch on you if they're able to walk through the knee or if they're able to position their body so that they don't eat the full brunt of the knee. See, for example, the other fucking week with Jose Aldo versus Marab Valishvili. Aldo was throwing the intercepting knees as Valishvili was shooting in for takedowns. Didn't really affect the exchanges too much, though, because Marab ended up getting into the clinch and stalling on the cage, and, and he ended up winning the fight that way. So I think you got to be careful when you throw those intercepting knees, but you know if, if you see Ty coming forward with the jab or the double jab, that's kind of, yeah. I, I can totally see Cyril throwing the intercepting knee and catching him kind of unawares. In the clinch, I think it's going to be an interesting game. I think you're going to see a lot of, because of the height differential, I cannot recall exactly how tall each of them are. Wikipedia is saying six foot five inches for Cyril Garn. I take that with a grain of fucking salt, but we can go off of that. And Tai Chi of us is six foot two. So there's there's a bit of a disparity. I can certainly see Ty getting into the clinch and putting his forehead underneath the chin of Cyril, framing on the face, and then exploding out with elbows over the top. I mean, he's probably not going to be able to reach for elbows over the top, really. But he's, you can certainly see him going for those hooks to the body and then coming over the top with hooks to the head once he brings that guard of guns down. If I'm Cyril, I probably don't want to fuck around in the clinch too much. If I do get pushed back to the fence... I'm looking for a single-collar tie, turning the corner, creating an exchange on the exit, and then getting back to the center of the octagon. Look for him to be landing lots of inside low kicks from orthodox. Look for him to... He loves throwing a straight left from southpaw, falling into orthodox, and then throwing the right hand behind that. I think those kind of weapons are going to be really effective against, against Ty to back him up. Ty does have a decent counter left. Oh, yeah, there's decent counter rear hooks, honestly. Uh, we saw a good counter left hook as... What's his name? As Greg Hardy fucking stumbled forward trying to land big shots because he thought he had Ty hurt in at the beginning of their fight. And that's how Ty ended up stinging Greg Hardy and putting him out. So I think you've got to be careful with overextending on shots. I think... Yes, Ty doesn't have a whole lot of pure natural heavyweight power like some of these motherfuckers do. Like, he's not one-shotting guys the same way Francis Ngannou does, the same way Derek Lewis does with his rear-hand uppercut. He's just not doing those kinds of things. But he does, he's, he flurries really fucking fast. He, he flurries a whole lot faster than Derek Lewis, for example. And he does have some good counters. And I liked what he was doing against Derek Lewis, the finishing or kind of the lead-up to the finish, the way that he drew out the rear-hand uppercut of Lewis. Because Derek, he's looking for that rear-hand uppercut. He fucking, he's bludgeoned a lot of people with that kind of thing. He absolutely brained Curtis Blades with it. So what Ty did is he fainted the level change and then went with the overhand right as Derek 
lowered his, his right hand to go for the uppercut and landed a really fucking clean shot. And that kind of stuff, it demonstrates to you that Ty is a more cerebral fighter than you might assume. I think based on his general persona, people see the shoeys and stuff like that, and they see the fact that a lot of his finishes end in just these massive flurries, and they go, oh, you know, he's not that technical of a fighter. But he can be. I think he's got some really decent feints, some really decent entry feints. And I think... He seems very committed at this point in his career. I think he has really tried to address a lot of the issues that were giving him issues, a lot of the issues that were giving him pause earlier on in his career. I think his takedown defense recently has been a lot better than it was versus Sergey Spivak, for example. And he also he gassed in that Spivak fight, if I recall correctly. He gassed pretty hard. He has had this sort of issue on a number of occasions. Against Andrei Arlovsky, I thought he was kind of notably a little bit slower in that third round versus Arlovsky. And he seemed a little bit gassed coming out for the second round against Junior Dos Santos. Against Ivanov, that, that fight was just a back-and-forth war where they were both throwing bombs. This way, that way, every way. And so, understandably, he was quite tired going into that third round. But, yeah, I think more recently, whilst, yes, a lot of these fights are ending very early, Stefan Struve, that fight ended in the first round. Hunsucker, Greg Hardy, those fights both ended within a minute and ten seconds. And the Augusto Sakai one just barely went into the second round. But I thought, you know, against Derek Lewis, he looked pretty damn good going into that second round. Yeah, I think um, I think his cardio has been shored up a little bit. Is it good enough for five rounds? We'll fucking see. I don't think it... He, he's definitely not going to be on the same level as Garn. Because we know Cyril Garn can go a good five rounds. He can put on a good pace. But also, Cyril will fight to the pace of his opponent. So if his opponent is throwing a lot of volume, he will he will throw a lot back to settle them the fuck down. But then, if guys aren't throwing any volume at him, like Rosenstruck, Rosenstruck fucking did nothing in that fight. Rosenstruck was looking for counter-right hooks the whole fucking time. And so, Cyril realized that and just went, alright, I'm just not going to give you that right hook, and I'm just going to fight at your pace, which is essentially negligible. So, you know, he's, he's very willing to adapt to his opponent in that regard, and I think against Ty, he's going to fight hard, initially, because Ty's going to come out with a lot of heat. Actually, I can see the first half of the first round from Ty being quite measured and thoughtful and slow, and then as that first round builds up, I think by the end of the first round, we're going to see some flurrying from him. We're going to see some really big overhand rights. But yeah, I think Cyril's going to fight to that pace, and Ty's probably going to get tired by the end of the second round if the fight goes that long. And I, I see the third, fourth, and fifth rounds just being clear and definitive in favor of Garn. So I think if you're if you want an underdog, this is a Taichu of us is a pretty decent underdog in this matchup because I think he he's really solid on the inside. He has some really good elbow work and he's surprisingly athletic given his size. And he does cover ground pretty effectively with his overhand right. I think he feints the entry for that overhand right pretty effectively. And Cyril does have the habit, like we like we were talking about in that Dontal Mays fight, he does have a habit of kind of overreacting to some feints and leaning really heavy into his slips and his rolls. So I think Ty, if you're picking Ty, you're thinking about either his work in flurrying or his work feinting a significant slip from Cyril and then countering over the top of the overhand right. 
or using that as an opportunity to step in and, and initiate the clinch and therefore initiate his offense. Those are the kinds of things that you'd be betting on Ty doing. But I think it's just more likely that Cyril you know, is able to ride it out and either gets a fifth round finish, a fourth or a fifth round finish, or a decision. I just think he goes long in this fight. I, I'd probably, I'd edge by decision. I'm seeing the odds here on sports bet. Cyril Garn by decision is three fifty, three dollars fifty, which is pretty fucking good, honestly. I don't mind those odds at all. I'd probably take that. What else is on this card? Well, the co-main event, baby. So yes, in the co-main event, we have... Robert Whittaker taking on, taking on Marm Vittori, which is a bit disappointing this isn't a five-round fight because it deserves to be a five-round fight. It is a sensational matchup between two of middleweight's best athletes, two of middleweight's just, I don't know, most interesting and compelling characters, I guess you could say. Robert Whittaker is obviously coming off of the rematch with Israel Adesanya where he fell short. It was actually really really fucking close. I, I don't know. Yeah, it was a unanimous decision in favor of Adesanya, but I think live, I remember saying, oh, you know, this could honestly swing Whitaker's way. I think, obviously, he gets hurt in the first round, but there are a lot of swing rounds in that fight, which could go either way, just based on what you, what you prioritize when you're scoring a, a round. And I thought he just did a great job of adjusting and playing a more safe, conscientious, or fighting a more safe and conscientious fight than he did the initial time around fighting Adesanya. Prior to that rematch with Adesanya, he had a great little streak going. He beat Darren Till in a really, really stressful fight back in July of 2020, back on Fight Island. Beat Jared Cannonier a couple of months after that in October 2020, and that was at 254. That was the Khabib uh, Gaethje card. So he beat Cannonier. Probably his, I mean, one of his best performances to date at that point. His jab looked sensational, landed his his classic customary jab cross overhand, or jab cross uh, high kick, sorry. And I thought just did a really good job of avoiding some of the stance switches, a lot of the, the kicking. There, there were actually quite a few low kicks that, that Cannonier was able to land throughout the course of that fight. Not too surprising, given the longer stance that Rob typically utilizes. And he was utilizing it in that fight. But yes, his jab looked sensational. It seemed like he broke the orbital, or he fucked up the eye of Cannonier by the end of the fight. I believe he did. He did break the orbital or something like that. So his jab was particularly good in that regard. And then Kelvin Gastelum, he just put on a sensational fucking fight against Gastelum. And I, I know Gastelum is on a bit of a, a slippy, a slippity slope here, but he is still incredibly dangerous. He's one of those guys, it doesn't matter how many times he loses, you still look at him and go, he could put a motherfucker's lights out. Even though, what, he lost to Adesanya back at UFC 236, and then he, he lost again to Darren Till, and then Jack Hermanson after that via heel hook, which was really disappointing for Gaslam. Then he beat Ian Hynish, and now he's on. He's currently on that two-fight losing streak of Whitaker and Cannoneer. Which, that's a fucking... That's a difficult... That's a tall task. There are a lot of killers in that list there of, of fighters that he has fought. So, you know... I think there are a lot of people that maybe look at that on Whitaker's record and go, oh, Gastelum's not that good. He's, he's had a lot of losses recently, but they've all been against pretty damn impressive guys. So, and I just think that performance from Whitaker was sensational. 
his entries for the takedowns, great. He did a great job of maintaining control from the top, not giving Gastelum opportunity to turtle and, you know, not giving him the opportunity to roll out of takedowns or roll out and create scrambles. Because that's so much of Gastelum's game is giving up his back and then giving up his back, quad potting, and creating a scramble from that position. Because guys are obviously, if you if you give someone your back, they're going to go for it. And so often people do on Gastelum, but Gastelum's just incredibly good at fighting hands, creating scrambles, getting underhooks, turning into guys. I think that's the key. You have to be really fucking fast and really good at turning into guys if you're going to be the kind of fighter who gives up their back to escape the ground, you know, and Gastelum is that, and Whitaker wasn't getting drawn into that fight, you know, there were, there were times when Kelvin was basically giving him an opportunity to take his back, and Whitaker was like, I'm not doing that, I'm not letting you up, essentially, but then on the feet, yeah, Whitaker was just fucking sensational, Jab, as always, looked incredible, he was shutting off the southpaw straight left that Gastelum is so damn good at landing. He has a, one of the best one-twos and one of the best uh, three-twos in the game. And his timing is consistently immaculate. But yes, Whitaker was just doing a great job fading away, not giving him that, that opportunity. Landing the right high kick behind... Yeah, sometimes it was behind the jab cross, but also naked, which we don't see as much of because... The signature move of Robert Whitaker will always be the jab cross high kick. And yeah, he, he almost always sets up the high kick that way, or he at least sets it up with a jab. And in that Gastelum fight, he, he threw a naked a couple of times, and it was really sexy. It was really cool. Yeah, and his left hook. His left hook looks so tight in that fight. He fought a little bit taller than I think we usually see him fight. And it allowed him to get his left hook off a lot more effectively, I felt. Now, coming into this fight with Marvin Vittori, it's a difficult one because it's not five rounds, and actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I really don't know who that would favor. I don't know whether that would favor Vittori more, because Vittori, is, he has incredible cardio, and he has a rock-solid chin. Like, this man is, I'm not convinced that you can hurt him, because he got hit with a left high kick versus, or a right high kick, sorry, from Paulo Costa in his most recent fight, and it kind of put him on skates for like half a second in the second round, and then he got back in it, and his, if you rewatch the the gif that I posted to the MMA subreddit just before the Paulo Costa-Luke Rockhold fight, you see Paulo hurts Marvin with the high kick, and then follows up, and is, is trying desperately to land the right hand, he's trying to land the left hook, and... Honestly, Vittori's defense, the way that he shells up, really good. And it's not just it's not just a matter of putting the arms up and shelling. It, it's also lots of really preemptive head movement and lots of little parries. I just I think his striking defense has gotten so much better, particularly when you look at his first fight with Israel Adesanya, where oh my god, Izzy was just slipping and rolling underneath these awkward jabs of. Vittori. Vittori doesn't even have his feet under him properly, and he's thrown out these jabs, and he's just slipping them perfectly. Izzy nearly did lose that fight just by virtue of not throwing enough in the first round, but yeah, there, there were points where you're like, damn, there's a disparity here, whereas nowadays, I think he jabs a lot better. 
He's still quite square when he throws his left hand because he's southpaw. He throws his left hand and he gets quite square with it. But he has pretty damn solid wrestling for the middleweight division, so I don't think he really gives a shit if guys are going to shoot in on him and and try their luck at a double because, you know, he's, he's fucking strong as all shit. He's great with the overhook with the wizard. And... You know, he's he's just an incredibly strong individual. So if you shoot in on him, there's a very good chance he's going to end up fucking sweeping your ass, putting your ass on the ground. I mean, yeah, I just don't see in this contest with Whitaker in particular, Whitaker shooting in all that much on Vittori. Or I just don't see him having success on top at the very least. You know, he might shoot in a couple of times. He might even drag him down to the ground because I think Whitaker's timing is so fucking good. And I think Vittori's going to come into this fight respecting the hands a whole lot. And as such, it's going to open up opportunities for the level change. But I just don't think... I think Whitaker, you know, is able to maybe sit and consolidate half guard for a few seconds, but Vittori is able to shoot underhooks and build up on single legs. And I, I just don't think that Whitaker wants to deal with that because Vittori's gonna be re- Vittori is really good at building up off the single leg and his single leg is pretty decent as well. So do you want to be fucking around with Vittori on your on your leg looking for the single leg? I, I don't know if I want that. I don't know if Robert Whitaker wants that. Yes, so I think if I'm Rumble Whitaker, because this is a Southpaw Orthodox fight, which, again, middleweight is fucking filled to the brim with Southpaws. It's like Chris Wyman couldn't fucking go, couldn't go a fight without fighting a goddamn Southpaw. He built his his name, his career off of fighting Southpaws, like Luke Rockhold, he fought Yoel Romero, uh, he fought Vitor Belfort, Leota Machida. He's fighting all these motherfuckers who are Southpaw, who are Southpaw and Rumble Whitaker's done the same kind of thing as has Paulo Costa. Paulo Costa, the vast majority of his opponents have been have been Southpaw as well. Robert Whitaker, same boat, you know? You look down Whitaker's record and there's just Southpaw on Southpaw on Southpaw. You know? You look at Hafe on the Tal, Derek Brunson, both Southpaws, Yoro Romero, Southpaw, Israel Asanya switches, Darren Till, Southpaw, Jared Cannonier will switch sometimes, does fight out of Southpaw a lot as well. And Kelvin Gastelum's a notorious southpaw. So he just fights southpaws on southpaws on southpaws. And I think in those matchups, he has quite a lot of success with his jab cross high kick. Because think about it. So you throw the jab and... Well, you throw the jab cross, and what will often happen is it kind of invites people to move out to the open side. Yes, you know, fundamentally speaking... When you walk into a boxing gym, they're going to tell you if you're southpaw versus orthodox, if that's the matchup, they're going to tell you to circle around the lead foot. So if you're orthodox fighting southpaw, you want to step around your opponent's right foot, which will be their lead foot. You want to step around that, move away from their power hand. But often, because Whitaker will he'll extend over, he'll reach over with the right hand. So guys... They feel it's often a little bit safer to move out and circle towards the power hand because he reaches across very effectively. And by circling in that direction, they walk into the high kick. They're expecting the jab cross, and then they forget about the fucking shin coming their way, and they end up uh, they end up getting clocked. Happened to Jared Cannon. It fucking happens to everyone. Happens to goddamn everyone. Go watch my video on Robert Whittaker's signature move, Death Taxes and Robert Whittaker's one-two high kick. It's up on my YouTube channel. It's one of my more popular videos, which isn't saying that much. It's not that popular. But 
you know, that video touches on it and talks about the way that he sets it up and the way that guys circle into it. And I, I show a few clips of that throughout the course of that video. So I think I, I can 100% see Marvin Vittori slipping to his left as a southpaw and getting a shin to the fucking dome. Do I think it puts him out? No, because I just don't understand. His chin is fucking insane. It's immense. So I honestly can see Mum eating a high kick from Whitaker and just shrugging it off. But I think Marvin's going to be... He's going to be pressed by Whitaker's jab. Whitaker fights so effectively at range. And because it's a Southpaw Orthodox fight, Whitaker does have a really nice low-line sidekick. Technically an oblique kick. Because... He actually switches a bit sometimes. Against Darren Till, you notice there were a few times where Darren... Well, Darren Southpaw, so he's standing at Southpaw, and Whitaker would switch to Southpaw to throw the sidekick across himself. What you often find people usually do is they throw the low-line sidekick, so they use their lead leg to throw a sidekick to their opponent's lead leg, because it's an open stance matchup. It works best when it's Southpaw versus Orthodox or vice versa. If you're both in the same stance and you want to throw a sidekick to your opponent's lead leg with your lead leg, you have to step across yourself because the legs don't line up. If you're Southpaw Orthodox, then my lead leg is my, as a Southpaw, my lead leg would be my right leg. Your lead leg would be your left leg. We're mirror images of one another. Everything lines up. And so if I want to throw a sidekick to your lead leg, then I don't have to I don't have to move my hips. I can just I don't have to move my hips across, sorry. I can just you know, I fire that low kick, that sidekick directly ahead and it will land. Whereas if we're in the same stance, you have to go across yourself. And so it's kind of awkward. Not a lot of people do it, but Whitaker fucking did it heaps in the Darren Till fight and fucked up Darren's knee, I believe. Darren was came out of that fight talking about, oh, you know, I can see why Stephen Wonderboy Thompson was not a fan of me using this technique against him. It really fucked my, my knee up. It jacked my knee up. So Rob had a lot of success with that in that contest. So it'll be interesting to see whether he does that against Vittori a bit here, but I can, I can see him doing it from either... I, doing it either way, either switching southpaw to land it across himself or doing it from orthodox just directly to the lead knee. I can see him landing that shot quite a bit against Vittori, and I think so much of this fight is going to come down to him preventing Vittori from entering into the pocket with those those rangy left hooks that Vittori throws. He throws a lot of rear hooks to the head, which is a little bit rare, and he throws a, a, a pretty good right hook up top as well with his lead hand, and his jab's not that great, I think he telegraphs it quite a bit, but, and and just generally, he stands very square, so Rob, who has that sort of karate stance, stands quite side on, stands very long, he's going to be at an advantage in this fight, in the sense that he's going to be able to, he's going to be able to fight at range a lot easier than Vittori is, because Vittori is a lot more compact, he fights squarer, he d- he's, n- he's simply just not able to get as much extension on a lot of his shots as Whitaker is, just by virtue of his stance. So for Whitaker, yes, it should be about low-line sidekicks, it should be about throwing the teeps, the same way that he did against Romero in their first fight, you know, when, when he fucked up his, I think his right knee it was, he started throwing push kicks, 
and it was with the rear leg because he's orthodox. So he's throwing the right leg. He was throwing the fucked up knee at Whitaker. At, sorry, at Romero with these with these straight kicks and was having a lot of success with it because he didn't have to plant it in that circumstance. <laughs> um, so yes, I think those are the kind of weapons he needs to use. And if he catches Vittori slipping to the inside angle, then yes, go for that high kick. Put that high kick up there. But he cannot get drawn into the clinch, and Vittori is really strong in the clinch. I think Vittori is really good just by virtue of having a rock-solid chin. Just wading through the fire, getting into a situation like double underhooks or over-under he's very content with, and dropping for singles periodically, but ultimately just controlling the clinch, controlling the upper body uh, clinching game and landing shots, landing knees, landing elbows when the opportunity presents itself, framing on the face and then bringing the elbow over the top. Those are the kinds of things that he he should be looking to do in earnest throughout the course of this fight. And yeah, if he can drop on the single and he can get Whitaker to the ground, Whitaker's obviously a great scrambler on his back, very good at creating space, using butterfly hooks, posting on the hips, uh, great at controlling posture. I mean, fuck it, he was going to go to the Commonwealth Games to represent Australia in wrestling back in 2018, I think it was. It was right before the Luke Rockhold fight that he had to pull out from that because the UFC were concerned. Oh, our champions, he might get fucking injured wrestling for Australia. We, we don't want that. So he had to pull out of the Com Games. But yeah, he was going to go to the Com Games for wrestling. So his wrestling game's fucking legit. And he's great at quad potting, similar to, to Kelvin Gastelum just great at building up his base really, really fast. I think that's the key to his his get-ups, is just how quickly he goes about it. It's not so much systematic as it is explosive and powerful. He pushes down on the head really effectively to control posture, and he's, you know, he pushes down on the head to free his legs, to, to give himself an opportunity to free his legs when guys are shooting in and trying to get single legs, things like that. And he's got a great sprawl as well. So I think, I think yes, Robert Whitaker should be the favorite in this matchup just by virtue of having more weapons. And it, the impetus is going to be on Mam Vittori to close the distance, to enter. It's likely he's going to throw a lot of those. He loves his doubled up straight left into a right hook, and then he'll probably initiate double underhooks and things like that, or he'll just throw the straight straight left into the right hook and then initiate the clinch from there or initiate the single legs from there. That's The impetus is on him to create those exchanges and to do those things, whereas Whitaker can just fight on the outside, and he has the better jab. He has the longer jab. I think Vittori is a much bigger fighter, yes. But Whitaker has the longer weapons. He has those low-line sidekicks. And Vittori stands quite square. And yes, he, he does check kicks surprisingly well. I thought he was doing a pretty decent job of checking kicks in the fight with the first fight with Adesanya. And he checked a few kicks throughout the course of the fight with Paulo Costa. You know, because he's so square, he can pick his his lead leg up quite effectively. He's he's quite compact. But I think Whitaker's, I think Whitaker's probably going to exploit that. I think he's going to come out. He's going to land a couple of low line side kicks, oblique kicks, whatever you want to fucking call them, depending on the stance that they come from. And I think he's going to try and look to get Vittori picking up that lead leg and fighting, like I said, in a very compact way. 
because it allows Whitaker to fight longer. If Vittori is all shelled up and he's trying to check kicks that are coming, then that's going to give Whitaker the opportunity to really extend with his jab. He's not going to be concerned about counter left hooks, not counter left hooks, counter right hooks as much because he's going to be able to see these things as he's bounding in from distance. So I think, yes, Marm Vittori has to, has to win this fight. Whitaker, I think, should be your bet by default. He's $1.42 on sports bet versus two ninety for Vittori. And I think you can get Whitaker, oh, actually, $1.84 for Whitaker by decision. Yeah, I'd take him by decision. I would not bet on a, a finish for either guy in this circumstance, just by virtue of them having incredible chins. Even when Rob was hurt in that first round against against Izzy off of the straight left, which, you know, I hope no one's putting too much stock in that because, you know, Izzy landed that straight left. And yes, Mom Vittori is also a southpaw and does throw a lot of naked straight lefts down the barrel like Izzy can from southpaw. But Izzy's a much longer fighter. Izzy was able to back Whitaker up to the fence, and that's when he landed the straight left. Whereas Vittori, I think, his cage cutting isn't as... I mean, it's it's not as good. So I just don't think he's going to be able to push Whitaker back. And I just don't think Whitaker's going to respect Marvin Vittori as much as he did Izzy in that rematch. Because he came into that fight recognizing how good Izzy is, and that Izzy had knocked him out in the first fight, and thus he gave up ground. He was fighting very conscientiously. He was fighting very thoughtfully throughout the course of that contest and I just don't think he's going to be I just don't think he's going to give anywhere near as much respect to Vittori so I just don't think Vittori is going to be able to back Whitaker up onto the cage and then land that naked straight left down the middle come back here and flame the shit out of me if I am wrong and he actually manages to do that but I think yeah it's just I think Whitaker Whitaker fights long has a better jab Throws, push kicks. Yeah, I can see him fainting kicks to force Vittori to try and check, to, to pick up that lead leg to check kicks, and then going with the push kick down the middle and maybe pushing him over, pulling a Junior Dos Santos versus Ben Rothwell, that kind of fucking thing, you know? I can see him doing those kinds of things, but Vittori is so tenacious and is really powerful does decent work out of the body lock. As we were talking about previewing Paulo Costa versus Luke Rockhold, one of the takedowns, I think, in the second round, third round, probably the second round, I'd say, was Vittori from double underhooks getting a, getting a takedown from the body lock. I think Vittori, that should be the approach. Don't, don't shoot in on single legs too much because I don't think he's going to have that much success versus Whitaker, who's got some of the best takedown defense in the game. I think leverage your strength advantage because Vittori is so fucking big. Leverage your strength advantage. Look for double underhooks. Look for outside trips from double underhooks. Try and get takedowns from the body, the body lock. Don't give Whitaker space to use elbows because he has great fucking elbows. As we saw in that rematch with Romero, Whitaker was on skates in that third round, but there's one of the most significant shots of that third round was him landing a massive elbow on, on Romero as Romero stepped in. So don't give Whitaker space if you're Vittori. Just close the distance, look for body lock takedowns, outside trips, those kinds of things, and and work from the top if you possibly can, because he's got great ground and pound. I mean, we've seen that on multiple occasions. We saw that against uh, who am I thinking of? Carl Robinson. 
great ground and pound in that matchup. Yeah, I think he's got great ground and pound if he gets on top. So yeah, just try and try and work from the body body lock if you can if you're Marvin Vittori. But yeah, I think Rob Whitaker should win this fight. Uh, what else is on this card? Roman Kopilov is back. He's fighting Alessio DeChirico. That's a banger. I'm actually high-key excited for that. John McDessey is not retired. That's wild to me. He's Canada's favorite son. That's a joke. Canada's got GSP. They, John McDessey doesn't even come in the same stratosphere as GSP. So, you know. But I, I'm now looking at his record. He most recently beat uh, Bahamondes by split decision in 2021 at the Vittori Holland card, at the Apex, and I completely forgot that fucking fight happened. I remember him losing to Francisco Trinaldo, but we don't judge a man for losing to Francisco Trinaldo. He's Francisco motherfucking Trinaldo. The dude is is an enigma, you know? He's fucking 60 years old and throwing southpaw overhand lefts like that shit never goes out of style. But yeah, John McDessie still around. He's going to be taken on Nasrat Hakparas, which is a fucking tall order. This very much feels like the UFC giving Hakparas a bit of a layup here because Huck, he's, he's fought some tough fucking guys recently. You know, back in 2020, he got knocked out by Drew Dober at UFC 246. That was a really impressive performance from Drew Dober and the kind of performance that we all pointed to when we were talking about how Dober's climbing the ranks and ascending into the sort of upper echelon in the lightweight division. Then he went on a 2-5 win streak, beat Alexander Munoz and uh, Rafa Garcia. That Garcia win's pretty impressive. But then, you know, had some recent hurdles. Lost to both Dan Hooker and Bobby Green. That Bobby Green performance, Bobby just looked sensational, I felt. That was in Houston back in February. And against Dan Hooker. Uh, honestly, Nasrat didn't look too bad, but his takedown defense wasn't, you know, he needed he needs to shore that shit up because Dan was, was t- picking him up with double legs and whatnot and uh, wasn't a great showing for the takedown defense of Huck Parast. Yeah, I feel like this is just Nasrat Huck Parast's fight to lose at this point because there's a big difference between Dan Hooker, Bobby Green, and then John McDessie on the last legs of his career. So I think yes. Nasrat, if I recall correctly, he's a southpaw. Gets a little bit wild with his left hand sometimes. Dude gets a little bit fucking overzealous with his overhand left. But I think he has the speed, great entries, good low kicking game as well. Yeah, I think this should be his fight to lose. Um, who else is on this card? The The real highlight of this card is Charles Jordan versus Nathaniel Wood. The real highlight. I mean, the main event and the co-main event are obviously what we're most excited for, but besides those, Charles Jordan versus Nathaniel Wood is a banger. That fight only got put together pretty recently, if I recall correctly, because I saw it, it got put together It got put together not too long after Nathaniel Wood's most recent fight. They both fought pretty recently. So Nathaniel Wood had that sensational fight at UFC London. The, the good UFC London card, the Blades Aspinall one. He had that sensational performance against Charles Rosa. Actually, sorry, Blades versus Aspinall was the most recent one. No, that one was shit. Uh, he, he was one of the bright spots on that card. It was his featherweight debut. He came in, he beat the absolute shit out of Charles Rosa. Jab looked sensational. He butchered the lead leg of Rosa. Just sensational low-kicking game. He was pairing his low kicks with the jab. 
yeah, I just a really comprehensive, beautiful performance from Nathaniel. Looked so much faster. And he's coming in against an absolute dog in Charles Jourdain, whose most recent performance, it was a loss to Shane Burgos in Burgos's last fight in the UFC. But I don't know, man. It was close. It was close as shit. I probably would have given it to Jourdain. I thought Burgos, well, Burgos was forced to rely on his wrestling for significant portions of that fight because Charles, I mean, that third round, Charles came forward and was just landing bombs, was creating a lot of really high-tempo violence. And that's Charles Jordan in a fucking nutshell. I think the key to this fight for Nathaniel Wood is keep it clean, land the jab, don't get drawn into the rear-hand uppercut, don't get drawn into intercepting knees. You know, Charles has really nice elbows. He's really fucking good in the clinch, and he's got great cardio. He can work a three-round fight to the best. Uh, you know, he works it better than most. Think about, you know, he was... He took a lot of damage in that fight with uh, Choi, Duho Choi, back in 2019. And then was able to weather the storm and get the finish at the end of the second round. It was a really impressive victory. You know, he's had a lot of a lot of barn burners where he's kind of been required to step up to the table and, you know, keep things going deep into the fight. And he has often. So I think, you know, if I'm Charles Jordan, I'm just going to dirty up the fight. I want to get into the clinch. Nathaniel Wood's also very good on the exit with his with his outside, what's it called, with hooks on the break and elbows as well. So, you know, don't think that if this goes, uh, what's it called, if, if it gets into the clinch that Jordan's, you know, this is his arena and Nathaniel Wood has nothing going for him. But, Yes, I think Charles Jourdain wants to be working knees and elbows in the clinch. That's pretty stock standard. He wants to be looking for those double-collar ties and working from there. Um, yeah, what else is on this card? Imamov's taking on Joaquin Buckley, who's back. And I think Joaquin Buckley had a really good performance in his his most recent fight. That was Durayev. That was a pretty impressive performance, if I recall correctly. I was quite impressed with that one. And, yeah, there's some other fights on here. A bit disappointed because we were going to get a Ricardo Hamos fight, but Ramos, I think both fighters got in- injured. Both Ramos and Danny Henry got injured, so that's a bit disappointing. But, oh well, we will survive. Yeah, I think it's it's a pretty decent little card they've got going on. I'm excited, obviously, mainly to watch Whitaker versus Vittori because I think it's going to be a banger. And it's going to be really fun to watch the French audience get a fight card because I believe this is their first ever UFC card because the sport only... It only became legal. It only became sanctioned in the country, in fucking France, very recently. This year, early this year, I think it was. So... Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting to see it, you know, get its opportunity. What else? What's been happening in the news this week? Alex Pierre is posting videos, or not videos, posting photos of himself. He looked fucking massive, looked way bigger than Dominic Reyes. On that note, Dominic Reyes on Instagram just announced that he's moving to Connecticut, or he's doing his camp in Connecticut with that team down there. Uh, that works with like Glover Teixeira's team. And they've been doing some some really good things. I feel, obviously Alex Pierre, 
he trains out of there as well. That's why Dominic Reyes was taking a photo with uh, with Alex Piera. But yeah, I think that's a great decision, or, or at the very least, it's an interesting decision. So I'm excited to see how that pans out. What else? There's been some, uh, you know, the welterweight division is a constant source of cringe and. You know, if you want to just slap your own uh, your own face with bemusement as a bunch of guys talk shit but don't actually fight, then look to the welterweight division. Because fuck, man, Jorge Masvidal is he is dancing around, shaking his butt, trying to make the pretty girl at school show some affection. Because you know he spent fucking years ignoring Leon Edwards after the three piece and a soda bullshit. You know, where he assaulted someone. <laughs> where he actively assaulted someone in uh, in an arena. And then... <laughs> and then, fuck, man. So he ignores him for years, and now that Leon's got the belt, he's like, oh, no, I deserved this. Come on, Leon, we got to settle this. It's like, what the fuck? Shut the fuck up. But I've just been going through Hore's dumb fuck... Twitter, and, you know, he he represented for Trump during the 2020 elections, so you kind of know where he fucking stands from the get-go politically, but damn, he says some dumb fucking things. Like, most recently, I saw it on Instagram first, and it's on Twitter as well, like, this post where he's put a highlight video of himself up, and he's like, people throwing the word, quote-unquote, deserved around, like, anything in my life I didn't earn. The fuck? I look like a Democrat? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, any... Okay, people throwing the word deserved around, like, anything in my life I didn't earn. You know, so he's essentially saying in that statement, I deserve the shot against Leon Edwards. And... It's like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? Colby Covington's right there. Colby's right there. He just beat your ass. He just beat your ass. What the fuck are you talking about? You know? I, I want. I hope people don't go onto my YouTube channel, see that I made that video on Masvidal's takedown defense prior to the Colby fight, and go, wow, you must be a big fan of Jorge Masvidal. I'm a fan of the fighter. I'm a fan of, you know, I'm a fan of him strategically, technically, those kinds of things, but fuck, man, he is a dumb cunt. He is a dumb motherfucker sometimes. The fuck, the fuck, I look like a Democrat. So he's like, yeah, no, I, I deserve this opportunity. I've earned it. I've earned it. You think I'm a Democrat? These motherfuckers begging for shit that they didn't actually earn. It's like, yeah, well, that's exactly what you're doing, though. That's exactly what you're doing. You just lost to Colby Covington, and you had. Two consecutive fucking losses against Kamara Usman. One of them a major fucking knockout. A highlight real knockout. Where the fuck is your leverage? What is your point you're trying to make here? It just sounds like self-defeating logic. Oh, and there's just a bunch of shit here. Just a bunch of bullshit. Like, going through his fucking Twitter is just like, oh my god. Who's paying for the student loan handout? More taxes means less money for everyone. And it's like, I don't know, man. The fucking... You're out here talking about, like... What people deserve, what people earn and shit. You're being gifted a fucking title shot. Or you're you're requesting to be gifted a title shot. And you're talking shit about student loan handouts. Student loan handouts. 
See, I, I've been really pissed off about this all week. This narrative that you see online that's like, you know, it's basically like positioning the whole student loan situation as rich cunts versus poor cunts. And supposedly, fucking, what's it called? Uh, not Democrats, the other ones, the conservatives. Uh, <laughs> Republicans, that's the one. Republicans are on the side of the poor people. They're like, yeah, no, farmers and all these stuff, they have to, they have to work hard and they're going to be forced to pay for rich preppies to go to college and to forgive all this, these, these loans. It's fucking bullshit. And it's like, do y'all motherfuckers realize that there are some farmers who go to college to gain knowledge? And like, like, it's not like every single fucking person who works the land is completely adverse to going to fucking college and to getting an education. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. Arguing against this student loan handout thing is arguing against education. Because... I mean, it, positioning it as a as a rich versus poor thing and saying you're siding with the poor by not advocating for the student loan handouts, it's fucking... It's hypocrisy. It's fucking hypocrisy. Because, you know, then colleges, the only people who can actually get into them and the only people who can actually afford to go to them without accruing outrageous amounts of debt, which debilitate them are rich motherfuckers who are able to bankroll their way through that shit. You know that when they come out the other side, they're going to be able to deal with the debt that they've accrued. Whereas poor motherfuckers look at it and they're like, I've got 150 grand of debt and I'm still working at fucking McDonald's. And, you know, it's like, what the fuck? Trying to act like you for poor people? Like, shut the fuck up, Jorge Masvidal. Shut the fuck up. My God. Jesus Christ. He says some dumb shit. Great fighter, but jeez, he says some dumb shit. Anyway, that's beside the point. Yes. Anyway. That's about it for this week. Is there any other fucking... Any other news that's particularly interesting? Vandalay Silva retired... I think we all saw that and were like, wow, I didn't realize he wasn't retired. I didn't realize he was still technically fighting. (laughs) Fucking dumb as shit. But yeah, no, he officially retired, which is good. Because I don't really need to see that man get more brain damage. Apparently, according to the comments on the Reddit post, he's he's going to donate his brain to science. Which is good, because that man's probably got more CTE than... Fucking any other man alive. So it's good to see that we're gonna we're gonna get an opportunity to learn a significant amount upon Vondelay Silva's death. So that's great. That's great. But apparently he's suffering from a lot of the symptoms of CTE. He's already noticed them. He's been marking them down and noting them. And that's a bit sad. It's a bit concerning. You don't like to see it. You put on some fucking bangers, but Still don't want to see that man fucked up by CTE. Anyway, yeah, no, I'm actually going to finish it now. Thank you very much for listening, guys. I appreciate you sitting through an hour and 27 minutes of me blabbering and doing this dumb shit. Hope the fights are sensational this weekend. Hope you have a great night. 
great night tonight. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. Anyway, see you later. Bye.